I'm James Jolly and I'm thrilled to be sitting down and chatting with some of my musical heroes. Welcome to this episode of Music Makers on Medici TV, a series in which we get to meet some of the most talented musicians on the planet. In June 2019, musical history was made in Moscow when a Frenchman won the piano category of the International Tchaikovsky Competition for the first time ever. He went on to take the Grand Prix, the top prize for the entire competition. His name is Alexandre Kantorov, and he joins me for this episode of Music Makers on Medici TV. Well, to start, I'd like to take you back to June 2019. Quite a journey. <laughs> so is that a memory that's going to stay with you forever, or was it all a bit of a blur? It is just a kind of a blur. I remember bits and pieces, really, of this moment. I remember distinctly uh, the moment off stage of the Tchaikovsky uh, Second Concerto before to do the bombs, because it's a feeling I'll probably never have again, this uh, uh, state of mind where everything in the body is exhausted, but at the same time, relaxed and because there's no more pressure, then the rest of the concerto is, is kind of a bit of a blur, to be honest. Because that was the, the, the end of the Brahms second concerto. That was yes. the end of the, the... Basically, there was nothing more you could do in the whole competition. That was <laughs> no. it. Yeah, that was the last notes of the competition. I felt on the moment relaxed, but on now what I hear is it feels in, like a lot of adrenaline is, have, is going. It feels even like the end is kind of a big sort of race, the last mile before the end in a way, it, especially because the final movement is supposed to be like an allegretto and uh, sort of suddenly after all the drama, I feel a bit more Viennese. Here what I hear is like still <laughs> into it. So it's really funny to hear yourself again. Yeah. But it clearly worked. Yeah, <laughs> I know it worked. Well, let's let's take the, let's go back to the beginning of your of your story where it all kind of began. Yeah, um, you were born into a, a musical family. Your father, a conductor, um, yeah. violinist, Jean Jacques, mm. and your mother is a, a player too. Yeah, violinist too, also. And for the first years of my life, she was really the one there to to take care of my musical education because my dad was often playing concerts and uh, just. Here, heard him practicing, went to a few of his concerts. Uh, but yeah, she was really the one that uh, carried the, the musical education, the normal education, school life also, uh, because I think for them it was important that I shouldn't be a um, mandatory musician in a way. Uh, they were afraid a bit of being a son of a musician and uh, how Sometimes it can be a double-edged sword in a way. It's, uh, it opens a, a lot of doors at the beginning, but uh, in the same way, it can backfire very quickly. So they, they were actually a lot more focused on me having good notes and, and good grades in school. And music for... I loved sight reading. I loved the, the pleasure of... Was it always the piano? It was kind of, yeah, always the piano. I, I did try violin. I did uh, my few days of violin. Uh, Supposedly, uh, the first day was, was pretty special. Uh, they were all like thinking, oh, of course, he's going to be the violinist. The more as the days go by, it was worse and worse. Then I think the last day I was even put, taking it in the other hand, so it was my uh, descent into hell with the violin. And I mean, there was a piano in our house. It, was a, it felt a lot more at the beginning like a game, a sort of logic game where you, you have to read notes and, and find where they are on the keyboard and you have to quickly assimilate that and yeah the real pleasure I remembered was reading time with them and so I know throughout the years it's this musical 
education that was so much in the background suddenly became more visible and for very gradually came to the, the center of my of my attention but it was a long and quite uh, yeah uh, slow process but I, I guess that you know with a, a violinist father and a conductor father yeah. you know you were exposed to a, a lot of repertoire over and above your piano studies yeah yeah a lot of repertoire but in a very unconscious way I remember really knowing a lot of works by ear or just by hearing non-stop my, my dad practicing um, without knowing at all what it was, who Beethoven was, anything, because, uh, yeah, it was uh, very unconscious. Uh, I wasn't also, I was in a normal school, I wasn't at all also active in the musical world. Um, I didn't know at all who was the, I would say, interprets of the moment. Uh, I, I didn't know a lot, uh, honestly. It was, uh, it's just that the ears were still working and taking a bit like a sponge some things. And uh, it, that's why it, it took, I think, so long. It, it had to be something that felt conscious and that I really wanted to do on my own. And then I started to really sort of dive into, into this world. And this Ru this Russian blood in your family, yeah. where, where where does that come from? I well, know. it's uh, from a long long time ago. Uh, um, it's actually the name was with a V normally, uh, and it was uh, at the end of the nineteenth century uh, that we had family uh, like the Jewish uh, family that they were from Odessa, and uh, they came to France. Uh, uh, I think yeah, at the beginning of the twentieth century before the Russian Revolution and the French administration messed up and added a, another V, so it made a W at the end. And yeah, uh, we didn't have any connections of, uh, of, of Russian family. Nobody in my family spoke it. But having grown up with actual Russian teachers, the first one was Igor Lasko, and then uh, later on the teacher which I, with who I still work is called Rena Shereshevskaya. And they both tried to give me, in a way, this uh, Russian heritage transmission of knowledge that uh, I think is one of the things that distinguish these cultures of music. And when I went to Moscow for the first time, it was one year before the competition, uh, Rena, she took us, the whole class, to Moscow. And we went to concerts, we went to visit Prokofiev's house, we went to the museums. And it, it, it felt, it felt special. It really felt special. I don't know if it's psychological, if it's something still in the blood, but yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, do you feel a connection to, to, to Russian music? Because you, you've, you've performed a fair amount. Yeah, I, definitely. Um, probably also because, yeah, when I was 12, 13, Igor gave me a lot of Russian music also. I've always had something, maybe a little connection to, the, to, this, uh, to this music. I've always, from a young age, listened a lot to Prokofiev. Listened a lot of Rachmaninoff play his music and other music. I think it's also a bit unconscious because when I see what I listen, it's, it's very varied and I don't feel that I listen particularly more Russian than German than French than English. But yeah, I think it's maybe um, a mixture of different arts also because I read a lot of, of Russian uh, literature. I've read and I've, with Rena, she's always focused on mixing different arts at the, at the same period or imagining what the composers could have seen. And so Russian paintings, uh, I've, I've looked a lot. And yeah, I think it, it's a whole that's made when I went to Moscow, I already had a lot of things uh, in my head or imagination. And going there, it felt a bit of a kind of revelation. 
Because part of the, the, the sort of the, the rules of the competition is you have to play a certain amount of, of, of Russian music. But yeah. I think one of the most striking performances you gave um, during the competition was it's kind of half and half because it was the Stravinsky yeah. Agosti yeah. um, Firebird Suite, exactly, yeah. which is a it's probably not quite as well known as the Stravinsky Petrushka no. movements, but it's it's an amazing piece. It's an amazing work. Uh, it's it's uh, less known obviously because it's not Stravinsky himself who wrote uh, the, this transcription. And yeah, the genius of Agosti was to manage to make it still comfortable, pianistic, really. It, it doesn't feel uh, out of place or extremely uh, uncomfortable in the ways it's, it's very comfortable. Uh, and he manages to, I feel, find in, in the piano exactly what will bring out uh, color-wise that will be close to the orchestra. And, and yeah, it's, it's an amazing work and it's, uh, it's an amazing accomplishment to have this much packed into the piano and make it comprehensible for people. I mean, let's, I mean, let's talk about piano competitions because your yeah. father, your father won a lot of competitions. I mean, when oh, did yeah. when did the idea of of entering the the, the Tchaikovsky competition? I mean, you, had you done any other competitions, or was this the only one? No, I had never done like a wheel three round competition where you would. Uh, you would stay in a place for 10 days, two weeks, uh, and so it was really my first time. It's true that my dad did a lot. We talked about it. He, he told me really at the time it was very different because the competition wasn't at all as followed uh, mediatically. It, it, it didn't make a career. One competition didn't make it. It was building blocks and you, you, you would have to do a lot of competitions and you actually at the time also needed money. So these competitions were very useful. So it, it was a very different state of mind. Today, really, uh, a competition can make uh, suddenly uh, somebody that was absolutely unknown in the world and suddenly show them in, in big lights. We had a very long dilemma about entering this, this competition. At the time, I was already very lucky because I had a record company, Beast, I had my agents, I had uh, uh, quite, quite a lot of experiences already with orchestra concerts. I mean, it was going well and we were thinking, really, is it necessary? I know some friends or teachers told me maybe it's going to be even a disservice if it doesn't work well. And so I, I was a bit thinking uh, vaguely about that. And I remember then seeing the competition Tchaikovsky uh, four years before I went and having this captivating moment where I saw Lucas de Bargue, he was the, the, the French pianist and at the time. has the same teacher as you. Exactly. And uh, at the time I didn't know Rena. Uh, I just saw him having something quite unique that everybody saw and that made him, even if he wasn't the winner, uh, the show, the lights on him a lot. I was very curious about, okay, who, who is this person and who did he study with? And I got in touch with Rena and she, she went to one of my concerts. I remember the first thing she told me is, oh, I see you have a Russian teacher, just by listening to me. And then she said, okay, we'll finish the conservatory uh, the, where I was at the time in the National Conservatory in Paris, and then come and see me. And we, yeah, we started working and quickly felt that, uh, okay, if I would, I would want to do this competition and only this one, I wouldn't try and do a lot because it, I didn't feel it was really my nature. Do you think there's a sort of a, a different approach to, to entering a competition? I mean, do teachers sort of say, you know, it's not just training you to be a pianist, but it's a competition pianist. I mean, is, is there a sort of a different approach that, that Renner say, taught you? Uh, she, no, she taught me only that if we do it, we do it very seriously and we, we do it in a way that wasn't too much in, in our culture. In, I mean, I know in France, 
competitions uh, a kind of mixed bag and it's we don't take as much time or preparation generally as people in Russia and Asia that uh, have this culture a lot more integrated in them. Uh, so I know a lot of friends uh, at the time, they would book a lot of competitions and just do the programs as they went. And with talents, they, they would get prizes, but it didn't feel like they would prepare differently than for concerts. I thought with quite a lot of experience in concerts already, it would just be another concert. And she said, no, beware, you have to play like you were in a concert. It won't be like that. And so even if you're sick, stressed, in a, in a terrible state, you need to have enough basis, enough reflexes, enough, enough integrated automatically into you that you would still be able to, to communicate music and not just close up on, on yourself. And yeah, it was the first time that I took this much energy and time on works and pieces. I mean, we spent ages on the, the beginning of Chasnej, for example, by Liszt, how to get exactly uh, this sound as if the music was always there and just suddenly it, it enters your ears and it was nightmare because every piano has different weight and you had to adjust immediately to that and the amount of importance that a little detail can make that was something really that I hadn't experienced before the fact that a great interpretation would change only by these small amounts of time you will take that are very well calculated the time you will take to try and really focus on the length of a sound or on the the tone of a sound and the particular color you will create. This was something, yeah, quite unique. And on the other side, she was really mystic and uh, every week she could change totally her way of approaching and she would always connect everything to Bach and symbolism that you would find in the passions. And she, yeah, and this, you had this weird mixture of, uh, of opening enormously the liberty you could have in works and at the same time having a nearly military training in the actual uh, work you would do on your hands. So I know it was, it was unique and I learned in these two years that we really spent preparing enormous amounts. I, I felt really myself uh, in only two years open up nearly more than I had uh, for the, the past years. It's one of the things I, that struck me being in, in Moscow for the whole of the, the piano competition is how incredibly discerning the audience. There seemed to be a sort of natural understanding and they seem to have incredibly acute way of, of, of just sort of focusing on the artists they liked. I mean, they clearly liked you from an early stage and there were, there were a couple of your fellow pianists who the audience obviously liked. And the other thing that was interesting is during the day of each competition, yeah. the audience would change. So in the morning, it would be kind of the grandmothers with the, the sort of, you know, grandchildren and then it would change. And by the evening, yeah. it would obviously be a lot of students and people, you know, who, climbed, who kind of sort of knew what was going on, as it were, from inside. I mean, did you, did you sense the sort of the, the feedback from the audience. I mean, I, I sensed it on the moment where I was playing, and it was also I, I realized how much important this competition was to to life in general in this smaller place area of Moscow. You would you would meet people that uh, every block around the conservatory that they were going to listen, they would recognize, they would. You, you really felt that it's important for the people. Uh, that went to this competition to live a moment of history in a, in a way. I felt it, it was really important. They didn't go to concert just because uh, they, they just liked music or why not because the education is, is like that. And no, no, you really felt that they wanted to be there to maybe experience some kind of great memory or great 
uh, interpretation that they, they hadn't heard before, people would be very direct with you after there were people that would say, no, no, I, I, you, you have a great feeling for bonds, but I hated like uh, Foreo, I hated something. And they would really honestly tell you in person, or it's more than just us and a price. It's really part of, uh, a part of just a legacy and, and it's important to, to respect that legacy. And suddenly, yeah, the, the weight on the shoulders were like, uh, okay. <laughs> So I remember, um, I remember interviewing you with your fellow competitors. At the, mm. I think it was before, it was just after the final, the, the prize was announced oh, and yeah, you came time. and joined us. Yeah. And, and there were a number of, and I, I got the feeling that actually you'd got, you'd become kind of friends with it. You know, there was a bit of camaraderie and you kind of Definitely. were rooting for each other. But obviously, you know, of course you wanted to win individually. But I kind of felt there was a real yeah. sense of a sort of collegial oh, feeling definitely. there. And, and we still have because it's a small world and we get to, to see again each other in different festivals different concerts I mean it's uh, yeah it's a it's a unique experience to be uh, actually for the the foreigners we were two in the hotel room so I, I spent the whole competition with the, the American Kenneth uh, right. one that was the third and uh, I mean it was tremendous luck because we did the whole competition together and I mean he was uh, a lot more veteran, I would say, of competition because he had already had a prize in von Kleiburn and he would, uh, yeah, he would really also take me a bit of under his arm, say, okay, no, be careful of the, the piano brands, be careful uh, of your hands because they are always getting a lot more tiring than you think they are. So he would every night take uh, ice, huge buckets of ice from the reception and like, say, no, pour your hands into this. So, I mean, it really all together and I think even if we, we, we didn't, on the moment of the competition, listen really to each other because, I mean, we were all focused also on what we do. We had a, a very good liking of understanding that we were all in the same boat and we would all sort of get something special out of this. And it, it's so nice then to carry on and to, to see us grow and to now go and listen to each other in concerts because... Uh, yeah, we would we will always share this moment. I mean, one of the striking things about the the, the competition is that you chose the Tchaikovsky second yeah. piano concerto. I think you were the only person to play it, and yeah. I think you're the only winner ever to have played it to actually win. I mean, why yes. why what what made you decide on that work? I mean, it's a lovely work for a start. It was it was <laughs> bizarre. I, I had just worked on the first concerto, like I mean, most most people and. I, it was six months before the competition that I, I did the, the, the change. I had trouble, honestly, I had trouble with the first one. I had listened it too much, probably, in my early years. It was so hard to take out all the traditions, all the reflexes that I had, and I got stuck in it, in a way. And I suddenly, I remember the day where I went into my dad's library, we took out the second concerto score, and looking at it, and immediately feeling so much more liberated by having in kind of way not to discover a new work but it felt a lot more like suddenly everything is open everything is new everything is fresh and you, you can I can just jump inside it and so even if it's more physical probably than the, the first in terms of endurance but it's more natural on the hands on the keyboard and now that I've played it it feels also a in a way a bit more personal it takes a lot more risk even on the composition side i know people have disregarded it because of its length because of its weird structure because he 
keeps on doing the same harmonic marches and repeating the same themes over and over. But in the way, I feel it's close to his operas. It's close to uh, maybe the, a bit more essence. It's taking a lot of risks and I, I enjoy it immensely. So. And also, there's a sort of slightly different relationship with the orchestra than they in the first. Because, I mean, you know, in the middle movement, it, it's yeah. kind of chamber music. It's a sort of piano trio set into a concerto, and which must be which must be nice. Oh, definitely. It's nice to have the piano have different walls with the orchestra and not just be on its own, becoming being the soloist and having the orchestra respond only afterwards. It's a great moment where you can actually lay, lay back and listen to the musicians. And uh, I've always loved playing with people and from, that was one of the things that made me also want to do music. And maybe, yeah, that's why also why I, I like these works where you can literally do music with individuals of the orchestra and not an entity that's called the orchestra and it's on its own. I mean, for a long time, French pianists had this terrible problem in that, you know, whenever they gave a concert, the promoter said, well, look, you're French, you've got to play French music. I mean, have you ever had that, that sort of pressure put on you? Because, I mean, if, you know, if I was to say, if somebody said, oh, what is Alexander Kantorov's centre of musical gravity? I'd probably say, well, probably Brahms, actually, That's not true, yeah. Ravel or Debussy. I mean, how, how, you know, what's your feeling about I think today, uh, with uh, everything becoming a bit more global, it's changed a bit, but it's true, yeah. I mean, I think it was like that for French pianists, but it was the same for Russian pianists where, or Russian musicians where everybody thinks, thought that, okay, they are, if we have them in France or if they are coming on a tour, they have to play, of course, Russian symphony because they, that's what they are good at. And we had the same for German, or I think maybe English also is like that. So. I think it's a temperamental thing, it's uh, uh, also empathy thing, it's something where a music uh, and explore more, more stuff about Brahms, yeah. And I mean, what's your sort of philosophy about growing your repertoire? Because I mean, you're young, you're 24, mm. you know, you've got a, a huge journey ahead of you, but there must be expectations from concert promoters. Um, I don't have a time limit, I think, to, you need by this age to have done this much. Uh, I always found myself a bit grounded to some of the less known of these concertos. I, I gravitate, for example, um, Ravel, I would much more prefer to do left-hand concerto than the, the one in G the first, or I would say maybe Prokofiev, uh, I've done the second, but I would prefer to do the fifth one than the third. And um, between all that, yeah, to find some different concertos. I know this summer I'm going to play also Masny, uh, as piano concerto, which is uh, which was never really done. Uh, Ciccolini has recorded it, I think there's another recording, but it was very, very seldomly played. I think yeah, this, you need to have a balance, of course. You, you, you cannot blind yourself and not go into these masterpieces because they have stood the test of time. And if they are this important, they were this important to other composers that took on them. And it, it's a bit like a canon in, in a way for, for Western music. So, of course, there's, uh, there's some things that I want to do and that I will do. Uh, it's just having a balance between curiosity and then diving into whiskey stuff that everybody does. I think in whatever your planning is, it must always uh, come from a feeling that you're at the right time to do something. And you feel that suddenly you have ideas that come or you, you feel that this is now what I want to do. The, the repertoire is so vast that you will always find pieces that you are suddenly attracted to and you, I think it's, we, we shouldn't uh, 
go against our instinct in, in this regard. Yeah. And how do you balance sort of within your repertoire, you know, solo stuff, concerto stuff, chamber music? I mean, do you try to keep a, a sort of mixture? You of can that? only grow with everything together. Uh, I feel that you get different kinds of experience on the, on the recital. You have, because you're the only one playing, you can go a lot deeper on the control of time, the control of, of, of the sound on emotions. You can plan a lot more, you can work a lot more. You have a lot more time to prepare generally. Uh, the concerto has this more of a, of a rush of adrenaline and of, uh, you, ad you have to adapt always because whatever you have planned, you have 70 people that will be uh, uh, moved by some uh, a conductor that has maybe different ideas. And, and presumably you don't have a lot of time actually to rehearse exactly. them together. Exactly, and because you have this uh, little time, it often feels that everybody has to sort of try and, and not uh, be too stuck into their prepared positions and uh, uh, and you get enormous experience of how to manage a concert and how to make music in a way that you would feel satisfying to you even with uh, a whole group and in chamber music I mean it's for me a, a kind of a medicine to the being on your own and being traveling on your own it's it's the, the moment where you can really enjoy the, the, the strengths of a group, which is uh, when it works a lot more than the individual strengths. And this is really a, a joy. And I know also singing was something that I was never used to do work with singers and I'm starting also to work and getting enormous amounts uh, out of that, amounts of uh, associating words and, and poetry to, to music and uh, it's the, the mixture of arts is always great because you get to um, understand more by associations and comparisons uh, uh, on uh, some on music that is very hard to communicate and to think about because it feels like an incomplete language where these rules but they are a bit hidden and they are a bit subjective and you, to ground yourself it's it's nice to have other arts supporting it. Mm. I mean, one of the things that, that struck me in Moscow was all that array of pianos that, that all the competitors had available to them, you know, a whole kind of slew. It looked like a sort of piano showroom at, at, at times. I mean, do you, do you have a favourite instrument? Because, I mean, one of the things about a pianist is you, you travel around the world, you can't take your instrument with you. So no. you basically have to, you have a sort of maybe one or two to choose from in certain concert halls. I mean, how, how do you manage that? Um, it's... Uh, it's it's a great mystery of on what happens on the moment. Uh, it's yeah, we had five different brands of pianos in, in Moscow. I, I don't think there's a particular type of band today that is um, just does better pianos than another. I think they are, especially today, more and more taking from each other to have a standard model. Generally, a bit more. Um, the differences are really, I think, with the tuning and with the people that are actually. Uh, working with the, the piano, I think somebody that can transform a piano in one year by tuning it regularly and having an idea uh, for the for the for the keyboard. Um, it's very special. It's very also subjective because at the same piano in a different hall, you wouldn't recognize it even on the fingers because there's this uh, relation that your ear has to the sound that even will change the f how you perceive the the keyboard. So it's a whole mix that you, you discover a hall and you discover a piano. Often it can be at the beginning a struggle. Um, I think a big part of how the concert will happen is uh, how well you will 
adapt to these new uh, parameters. Uh, you have to sometimes just by the, the instrument change a way of thinking music, a way of thinking of interpretation. If the, the piano is really very bright in the, in the upper register, for example, you, you maybe take slower time, think your dynamics, we take more time on the singing and try to make that your priorities. It's a, a risk and reward thing where you will sometimes get a lot by changing your ways because of an instrument. When you're too used to your piano at home, sometimes you can just be too comfortable in a way and suddenly this jolt of, of panic that you'll have on an instrument that you don't know will sometimes produce more fresh interpretation. So, Is there a sort of flip side of that, that, that you, you, know, you, you, you arrive in a city, you know, they say, look, we've got a couple of pianos, mm. you try one and you think, actually, this is a very nice instrument. And then you're halfway through the piece and you just think, wow, this really is. And you kind of, is there a temptation to sort of revel in the sound? And oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, there's a temptation. So when, uh, when suddenly the, the, the piano feels so, so great. I mean, one of the things I love is, uh, especially on an instrument of, like the piano, is when the, you can really make the sound last long. It's, uh, it's one of the, the great joys because you really actually feel that the piano is, is now a singing instrument. And it, just even the fact of your taking the time on your ears to listen to a note going down, uh, I think is sometimes enough to make, to make the audience also notice it. And you get also afterwards to, to know which tuner you loved when this, these guys, they had amazing pianos and you build also an sort of uh, ideas of type of instruments that are preferred for, for you or for different repertoire. In a way also, I sometimes get why some pianists uh, after a while manage to bring their own instruments. I mean, there's uh, a relationship you can grow that's like a violinist on his violin. That's, it's, there's a reason why when violinists took a new instrument, they often say they, they need one year maybe to, to know the instrument or to, to get sound out of it. I feel it's even if it's probably less obvious on the piano, it, there's something also of that kind of way. Back in the glory days, I mean, some I remember going to see um, Michelangeli yeah. in concert, and he had two pianos, you know, one for each half of the repertoire. So he had his <laughs> Beethoven piano and his Debussy piano, yeah. for sake of argument, which is very uh, luxurious. Definitely, it's, it's so luxurious. I mean, Horowitz had that. Uh, some pianists today also have it. Uh, I know uh, Christian I mean, Zimmermann travels yes. with his and, and does all the technical stuff himself. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, and so he has a huge knowledge of his instruments. And I know Pletnev does it also with his kawaii, that, uh, which is extremely special when you put your hands on it. So you, you really feel that he had, he's uh, worked it so that it will suit exactly his way of playing. And he also has two, I think, different sets of, uh, of keys. So that's uh, for different concerts uh, it, he, can, he can adjust. And he always has the same technicians with him. So, Do you pay any attention to, I mean, you know, you, you, you've been performing, you recorded the three of the Saint-Saëns piano concertos and, and 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 then the next instalment is 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 following. Um, I mean, do you pay any, pay any attention to the sort of instruments, say, era pianos, for example, of you know the sort of instrument that Saint-Saëns would have probably been playing back then? Actually, recently, yes. Uh, I in, not far from uh, in Paris, there's uh, this great shop that restores. I've tried some Erard, the Paolo strings. I've tried some old players. I've tried. Um, and, and it's true, they have, well, first of all, they have amazing tones, natural tones, that there's a lot of harmonics that resonate from, from the instruments. That, that, that's, that's great. There's, uh, of course, this diminution of power come, makes 
makes them I feel more naturally rich and in colors. Um, are they more responsive under the fingers? They have a lot more light. Mm. It's true. Uh, you, you understand a bit more how the, 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 some finger and some old recordings of Sansas playing, where he goes at a blazing speed and reading about, for example, how Sansas played and uh, this this kind of. Uh, extremely light, precise throwing of notes and uh, yeah, you, you, there's some things that we've definitely lost by adding power and uh, by adding tension on our instruments. When you play a, a, a piece by Saint-Saëns or one of the great pianist composers, you yeah. know, a Liszt or a Rachmaninoff, I mean, how much do you find out about the pianist's technique from the music oh. he writes for himself? That's a tricky balance because um, Oh, for example, Rachmaninoff is a, is a tricky one because uh, there's been a lot of traditions in his music that differ a lot from how he played. When on the scores, I feel that sometimes you, you get an idea of a composer, uh, you create your own composer, you create your own image, and it, sometimes it differs a lot from the actual life of the person or his way of playing or his way of thinking music. So, because quite a lot of, I mean, quite a lot of music is is taken a lot slower. Is if you go if you go back to you know say Brahms' performance, if you listen to Brahms' performance over the course of the 20th century, I mean, it, it, a lot of it has slowed down enormously. I don't know whether that's just simply because pianists have these great instruments which are you know ever more beautiful, Maybe. and that they kind of become more indulgent. Because someone like Rubinstein, who you know, is only one, I mean, one generation from Brahms himself. Mm, and yeah. Brahms actually, I think, heard him play yeah. when he was very, very young. I mean, you know, that's much closer, I'd imagine, to the true Brahms tradition. Probably. An earlier stage and, in the tradition. And it's true, and it's the same for Wagner. When you listen to the first recordings of the Wing of in the it's like 1920s, it's so fast compared to most recordings uh, afterwards. Maybe having more and more people that are only focused in interpretation and not composing themselves made them also uh, change the way they, they think music. Um, it's true, definitely the instruments probably have also done something to that. There's a whole balance of things. I don't know if the uh, history of, of the world also made feeling that when you interpret some music, you take on a, a much bigger role that probably they thought at the time where they would probably compose, uh, in, improvise, play, and, and it would be all not their only focus and it, it would be just part of the whole development of music. So yeah, I, I think it's more on, on this side. We, because it's the only thing we do, we tend to want to do it as, at the, <laughs> the highest possible way and so maybe have too much importance on, on our hands than, than is necessary. Well, here we are in um, 2022 and momentous things <laughs> have happened around us and are still yeah. happening around us. I mean, your, your Tchaikovsky win was the summer of 2019 and within a year, you know, the world had, had shut down. I mean, what, what effect did the pandemic have on you? Because just as your career was sort of blossoming and I had imagined your, your calendar was absolutely chock full, <laughs> yes. all of a sudden it stopped. I mean, what was your response to that? Yeah, it, of course, there was a lot of change, but I mean, I was extremely fortunate. I, the, the competition was before, there was still a lot of things going on and there was a lot of the only concerts happening. Uh, I was part of the, the small list of people that uh, generally people thought about. So it was a very frightening situation, but at the same time, it was the first moment when I came to sort of think about a bit more about what had happened because until then it was just a roller coaster and uh, we had actually after the pandemic quite beautiful moments where suddenly music felt again like something that wasn't grounded, concerts didn't feel as grounded as before 
uh, we didn't feel as much as it's a normal career. We felt that it's uh, it's something that's uh, quite unique, and we we're lucky to live out of it. And presumably, also, you must have sensed the the kind of the hunger that audiences had, having been denied live music for so long. Absolutely, and also other musicians. I mean, for the I remember the summer after the first lockdown when there was again a bit more concerts. The, the associations of suddenly musicians, uh, there was big stars playing with young people, there was some uh, concerts that uh, everybody uh, that used to say, okay, no, we, we cannot at the last minute announce your program, everything that was so uh, underneath uh, big administration structures, suddenly you felt, no, I mean, we can organize a concert in very little time. We I was going to say, a lot of, I mean, a lot of musicians have said one of the things they really they've really kind of enjoyed, if that's the right term, about the whole pandemic situation is spontaneity came back into that, you know, yeah. because they, they knew in two years' time that they would be playing, you know, the Brahms second piano concerto. Oh, but yeah. now it was, well, actually, next week, would you like to do the front violin sonata with me? That exactly. sort of thing. I mean, has, did, was that fun? That, that was nice. That was nice because it felt maybe a bit more going back in old times where what you would read, read about, you would read about Richter announcing on the, the night he would play something in a, in a small city and people would just come and it, it really felt again like the, the idea of the Wanderer, you would just go around and you would uh, have a bit more freedom in the way you would take life. What would you like to see in the new as it were, the new concert paradigm, because it's been it's been very similar for a very long time. You course, know, yeah. seven thirty or eight o'clock start. Mm. You know, forty five to sixty minutes interval. Another forty five to sixty, probably ending with a big sonata. Mm. And and it hasn't really altered very much. I mean, what would you like to do to it? I think we we shouldn't deny this this way of doing concerts because it it still is in, it interesting works. and it works. I think we should be a lot more just open to other genres. At the same time, we could have these one-hour concerts of suddenly uh, some some interpret arrives. He has everything. I mean, a whole program on the certain uh, journey or certain uh, musical idea or extra musical idea, and just just played for in one go. And uh, I think also audiences. I don't think they would mind if not knowing exactly what somebody would play before. I think it would be nice also for us even to really carefully think two days before the concert what I really want to play in two days, not just something that I announced one year ago, maybe I would want to play something else in a moment. And I also think it would be nice even to have, I don't know if this is like concert marathon, but to have these things where you would have long evenings of little bits of music creations, bits of symphonies, bits of, uh, of chamber music in the same, in the same thing. Also, I, would, I think that it would be nice to maybe follow the examples of what concerts to have first parts by other people, by younger people that aren't as known. I, I know that, for example, I mean, we are lucky the Con National Conservatory in Paris is next to the Philharmonie, which is an amazing hall. And, and there are stuff between the two that are linked, but it's, it's still too rare. It's a bit of a vicious circle because the things you can only learn when you have these great halls, these great orchestras, and you... You don't get a chance you, to play with them. If you don't get a chance, yeah. there's some things you won't get naturally and you can't evolve. So it's, it's, it can be a bit tough yeah, to have this breach and this wall that blocks. Yeah. I mean, what's your, what's your feeling about talking to audiences? I mean, you know, breaking that, breaking the kind of barrier between you on stage and the audience. I mean, do you, do you 
do you explain sometimes in your concerts why you've chosen a piece of music? Oh, it it, it happened. It happens. Uh, it's quite. I I don't know. I'm I'm still a bit conflicted about that. I I don't know if it's more powerful to just play and not put too much words on it. I don't know. Maybe it would be, I don't know, if before I, I, a tour, a recital tour, if there's a, a new program, maybe announce it, um, do a video before, or do something before. I don't know if on the moment of the concert it's a good thing to necessarily uh, impose words on, on music. Uh, I mean, I know for my part I'm a lot worse with words than music, so sometimes I, I think too much talking will probably destroy in, in a kind of thing that uh, the concert create has a little bit of magic when there's just somebody entering and playing and you can take whatever you want from it. I mean, here we are, you know, I'm interviewing you, you know, we are operating in the, in the, in the sphere of language, not, yes. not music. <laughs> I mean, that must have been something that sort of entered your career post-Moscow big time. You know, you have to play the media game. Well, you don't have to, but it's probably a good idea to do that. Yeah. I mean, was that was that something you had to kind of sort of you know steal yourself to do, or did it come naturally? I liked just talking to somebody uh, and and talking about music, so that that didn't feel at all like a strain. That I, it's harder for me like to, to have social media. But if you, I find that maybe um, it's it could be nice to maybe give. Uh, music that's related to the music you're going to play that you like or things that inspired you, books that inspired you, uh, films that inspired you in uh, certain things and just post them. That That's I'm thinking about and I think could suit me more because uh, now there's some things that I like, yeah, like interviews, talking, uh, having uh, just, yeah, conversations on music, if it's televisions or radio, that, that was never a problem. But it's true, the, the taking the time to say to the rest of the world, like, look at what's my life and look at what I'm doing. I know it's something that's uh, starting to interest people. Uh, it's just that, yeah, it, it, for now it's not 100% comfortable for me to do that. I mean, we talked about growing repertoire and, and you know, the, perhaps your musical centre of gravity, but um, where, do you, where does new music sit in, in, in your repertoire? I mean, do you feel any kind of duty to, as it were, expand the repertoire with new stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, it's also a question of balance because there's so many stuff that I, I want to play and uh, that's, that's, it's always harder also to promote and to try to, to put forward new music. Uh, but uh, yeah, I do it. Now there's uh, Guillaume Connaisson uh, that's writing a concerto for me and uh, we're going to do it with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. I think it's incredibly important to show it. It's also the only way that we connect firstly with a composer, something that we can't do with uh, all the general stuff and standard repertoire. To feel part of the, the, the musical life, to know that um, you can be a bit creative because then you suddenly, when you work with a composer, you, you suddenly enter a much more creative rapport. It's a lot more alive than just having a score. And so, uh, yeah, it's for me, it's for me essential. Uh, in general, yeah, I, like you said, I started a bit with bombs, but I'm trying to expand on both sides because I had trouble with also playing early music in, uh, in concerts. And I think it's a whole part of going further and exploring in both ways of time. This seems over the last, I don't know, two or three years, a real fascination from pianists of going back I mean, a long way, you know, because, I mean, traditionally, you know, no pianist really played anything earlier than Bach or Handel, perhaps. But now, you know, they're going back and playing music for the Virginals and... Absolutely, Monteverdi is becoming more... Exactly. More better, yeah. I mean, does that, does that sort of repertoire intrigue you at all? Oh, it, it, it does. It does. It's... Uh, 
the, the, the thing that is general for me in early music that posed me quite a bit of trouble to, to actually put them forward in, in concerts is the fact that the informations we, we know about the beginning, for example, of 20th century are, are so more gener expanding and vast because we, we have generally letters, we have even recordings, we have uh, composers playing, we have books on their lives that are a lot more precise. We know how people played at this time. When you go to like the 16th century, you, you, this this huge thing that comes from tradition that's natural at the time, that feels a bit like a huge archaeological study to to get to uh, not do the same thing because I'm I'm not sure we we I don't think we have to do the same thing and we have to try to show exactly how the music was played at the time. Well, especially as you're using basically you're using a different tool anyway. Exactly, it's a very useful tool because it can do enormous amounts of of things. It can look like an organ, it can sound like a clavichord, it can sound like a lot of different instruments of the past. We still need, I think, to take time and take it seriously. And even if we don't do it uh, at, like it was played, try to get a bit more to know it. And I, I know it's it's hard and it's taking time for me. Uh, I know even like I'm starting to play Beethoven in concerts, uh, going to Mozart, I know I will do uh, in, in a few years. Uh, these are things that for me are essential. But still, it's hard to feel comfortable in that you you found something that's worthwhile sharing with music that's so far in time. Do you have a I mean, do you have a sort of a favorite pianist from you know either the present or the past who you kind of look at the way they handled their career and how they developed their repertoire? You just think, well, yeah, that's kind of the way I'd like to do it. Um, yeah, there's quite there's quite a few. I mean, I like Sofronitsky very much. This playing of him that's uh, uh, at the same time it's. It feels extremely improvised on the moment and extremely spontaneous, but always still thought out. And he's, he's very uh, a very deep musician. This uh, I like how Volodos today manages his career. I find that it's a very well. He kind of goes against. I mean, he goes against the sort of the traditional pattern, doesn't yeah. he? And he doesn't give interviews. <laughs> you know, he he does all the things he shouldn't do, but somehow he's got that kind of. There's that sort of magic around him as a result. Yeah, there's a magic around him. I like how he manages to be the master of what he wants to do, in in the sense that he will play only if he. He says that, okay, now's the time. And, and his repertoire is extraordinary. I mean, you never know what's coming next. Exactly, yeah. And th that I really love. And I love also that the fact that he, he doesn't need to always be present on the scene or even the frequency of his recordings that are quite spaced uh, now. And yeah, that's something I think is, is nice. I think if I don't have stories in life to tell, if I'm too advanced in the musical stage and too far back in the normal life, I, th I don't feel that it, it could work really. So that, that I really look up to. Rachmaninoff, I often listen to his playing as a sort of good guide because I find that between, I would say, structure and sort of the, the braveness of playing and the, the actual sort of emotion and deepness he has. I mean, is he an interesting pianist to listen to for technique? Because he had these enormous hands. I mean, he, yeah. a reach of what, <laughs> think, octave yeah. and a half? Octave, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, yes, it's, it's incredible to uh, technically wise, uh, but it's, it's really about, I think, the timing that he, he has. It's an incredible timing. It's, uh, it's, it's as emotional as maybe Horowitz would take time, but without the sort of, uh, I would say, some craziness, sometimes the craziness of the time taking in Horowitz, he has this way of, uh, for a phrase, to still keep it in rhythm, and you, he knows when to 
then he will take time and it works and because I this is something that's there in the timing and that's really something I, I look up to this a lot of different pianists that are, I would listen to there's a lot of also different musicians that are pianists that I, I, I look up to and I, I listen to I know in uh, conducting wise I, I love Golovanov he's called he has these amazing interpretations of uh, for example his Wagner interpretations are for me even more insane his Tristan is even more insane than Ford Wangler and a lot more feverish and it yeah it's I just kind of explore and trying to suddenly find things that, that, that appeal naturally to me. Yeah. You were very lucky to start recording at a, at a young age, you were in your teens, you have a, an amazing record company, the Swedish label Beasts, run by the inimitable Robert von Barr, who you know, had faith in you from a very early age. I mean, do you enjoy recording as a process? Because it, it is an odd thing. Uh, a friend of me told me that his, for him, recordings is the best way of, of I would say, practicing. Because it's true, it's never the same. After you've done a recording, these things that suddenly um, feel integrated by the fact of repeating, repeating, and each time you have still the pressure of the microphone and it's not like playing and practicing at home. And it also, I mean, it must be a rare opportunity for you actually to hear yourself playing because, you know, obviously, you know, if you're yeah. playing it, you can't hear it. <laughs> and it's a terrible moment. <laughs> but, I, but yeah, because I, I, I also try to do. Um, for each recording, I do the editing myself. Uh, so uh, I, I don't do it on the computer, but I, I take all the wash and do the, the, the plan on, on the score. And uh, it always takes like at least one week. And uh, it, it's a very painful process where you you get very paranoid and you start off okay. And the more you get to listen yourself, the more you get attention to details that aren't important and you... And presumably you have to make the decision, you know, do I want perfection or do I actually want personality? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but, but it's, it's, a, it's a good process. And I, what I, I really love with the Beast and I was so lucky from the first record we, we did together is Robert told me really like, okay, you have freedom, you, you, you choose whatever you want to do and uh, uh, and yeah, we won't, we won't question it and we won't go against it. So it's, it's very liberating to know that you can choose whatever you want to record, you can, you can do it. And I love the sound engineers that uh, this works with in general and uh, the, the, the sound engineer I've worked with from the first record, he's called Jens Wahn, he's, he's absolutely phenomenal. So uh, he's sometimes the most objective musician in the room because he will, uh, even with orchestra, he, we, when we get too much into it and we lose uh, consciousness of what we do, he's, he's there to help us. He's a bit of a psychologist. So. Because you, you, I mean, as you as a, as a performer, you must have a different perspective on the sound because you are sitting, you know, as it were, at 90 degrees to the way the audience will be receiving the sound. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's extremely different, the image and the, the, what we have from the, the stage. I think this is one of the hardest things we have to uh, liberate ourselves is to still understand how the body must play and to understand that it's not exactly what you're receiving, but uh, trying to consciousize exactly what the people are hearing. It's, it's all a very tricky part, I think, to have this much consciousness on, on what you're doing. Um, sometimes it goes against yourself, sometimes it helps. But uh, I, what I like about a recording, and I think more and more, is the fact that uh, it, should be, um, it should be a special occasion. I think it should, uh, 
uh, now more and more I think that uh, not every recital, not every program or concerto I play must always get a recording. Yeah. It should come at also a white moment where you think, yeah, I've, I've got it. I, I think I, I want to do it now. And uh, is, that, is that a moment you sort of instinctively know that you've kind of passed some kind of milestone? You think now I really feel comfortable in this piece of music. I think I've got something to say, yeah, and it's yeah. sort of come together. It's gelled. Yeah, it's a bit instinctive, and and often it uh, you, you, you it. You cannot have it because the moment you feel it, it's it's never the moment exactly where you will record it because a recording has to be planned. So it's it's a hard balance to know that at the time of the recording you still need to keep fresh and to still have uh, the piece you're wanting to record still captivate you and and not be just like the blase thing you do after a whole recital tour. So yeah, it's it's tough to plan. I like sometimes the the idea. I know Platinum did that. He recording of some. Things after we, and the recording he did, uh, well, I think he just said, "Oh, I want maybe I should do this," and he hadn't played it for ages. But suddenly he plays it and it's recorded and it's great. Uh, yeah, there are stories of him. I think recording the Scarlatti sonatas that just the, the sessions went on deep into the night because he'd just say, "Oh, let's just do one more, and <laughs> one more, and one more." Yeah, and, and they basically ended up with two recordings. Exactly, and the, the Beethoven second sonata he has done is it was like that. It wasn't planned. It's only he wanted to play it. So that, this is something also I, I'm, I'm interested in. Probably the idea of just trying to capture a moment, and uh, sometimes it will be great, and you can release it. Sometimes it it won't, and th that's it. But I, I feel recordings should uh, for now more tend to a live concert in a way it should uh, it should have this thing where I mean objectively the best thing would have uh, somebody record every concert you do and find the white one and, and that would be it uh, uh, which is not possible of course but yeah it's something in this it's, it shouldn't feel too much of a studio recording it should have something there and when you've given a concert and, and you know it's encore time mm. I mean, do, do you, is this a sort of treat for your audience? Do you, do you think very hard about the kind of, on each occasion, because presumably you have loads of encores, as it were, up your sleeve. Mm. Is, there, is there, you suddenly walk off stage after playing, you know, the Brahms F minor Sinatra, maybe that's not such a good example, but <laughs> yeah, the yeah, big course, closing yeah. work, and then think, actually, I think such and such might be just perfect on this occasion. Sometimes, uh, sometimes you, you, you plan it because you think this is the perfect piece after this one and uh, it, it will go well. Sometimes it's, yeah, just the reaction of an, an audience. You suddenly go off stage and you think, okay, I will come out and I will play this. Sometimes what I, I, I do some, uh, sometimes also is to actually read music. Uh, I take out the iPad and, and uh, on the day of the concert feel that, oh, maybe I, should, I, I would like to read this work and uh, play it. In, in front of an audience. Uh, it's a moment where I think you can show off, even to show off uh, your, your weaknesses. I mean, in a way, it's, it's, it shouldn't be uh, the moment where you, you need to still keep it. It's, it's a moment where you, you just show the naturalness of making music and uh, yeah, sight reading can for me. And there's a very it. different dynamic I always think in concerts because quite often when a pianist starts an encore you, you actually you can hear either a physical a sigh from the audience <laughs> or a laugh from the audience yeah. or some kind of you know they've, they've held themselves quiet for so long they feel okay. actually now I can I can make a noise yeah, in the middle of the music. Absolutely and uh, some, people's are, some people are were like walking off and suddenly stopping to hear and are still upstanding. Uh, yeah it's, it's a moment where you, you can imagine just 
being in a soiree and just going on on a piano and playing it it has the same sort of kind kind of feeling of uh, okay now just just for you I'll, I'll do something and uh, it's funny because often in concerts I know a lot of audiences are going home and thinking a lot more about what you did in an encore than the rest of a concert and I think that speaks volumes about how uh, suddenly close everybody feels to each other and there's a whole interesting sort of repertoire, an encore repertoire, all these amazing transcriptions, you know, yeah. um, people like Earl Wilde and, Absolutely. you know, sort of Godowski, that school of, of the sort of late romantic, um, very virtuoso, mm. but very short, very concentrated repertoire. This, it, it seems to be making its way back into, into pianists' sort of repertoires of oh. late, you know, more and more playing, people are playing these things rather than just giving off a, you know, doing a Brahms Hungarian dance or whatever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's one of the great things is because there's so many, I think, recordings already been made, there's so many live concerts already online that are famous. I think we all today try to find stuff. We, we try to look at stuff that's not been too much done these days or that uh, we can show because for the interprets in the 20th century, uh, what they played uh, as an encore must have been fresh at the time. Even for us, if it's like the whole old standards, um, so I think yeah, it's a way of showing our curiosity. Uh, and it also reconnects with that strain, that, that that long tradition of the pianist composer or the pianist arranger. Yeah, absolutely. That it was something that. It was, you know, after playing a concert of music by someone else, you could say, well, actually, this is, this is me. This is my version oh, of Oh, totally. This. Yeah, we see it a lot more. Even people uh, that improvise, actually, and uh, as an encore, they would just do an improvisation. You find that also a bit today. And uh, Is that something you do? I mean, was improvisation something you'd be prepared to show off in public? Oh, I'm terrible. I, I, <laughs> I've done it, actually, once in public because... Uh, after a concert, there was this sort of night concerts where we would be few pianists and we would sight read, we would just play stuff that we would like. And yeah, there was a jazz player and a good friend of mine, and he said, okay, pushed me on stage and said to me, okay, we will start like, we'll start with Black Keys. Just, uh, I, will be, I will be there for you, but start off with Black Keys. And I remember the stress. And the, I was going to say, the, it must be terrifying. It is, it is. But uh, then it, uh, suddenly it, it feels nice and it helps if you have been drinking just before and uh, you just get, get into it and you forget about the, the fact that you're being probably judged then because actually you're not being judged. It's just in your head. I don't know if I will arrive honestly at a stage where I can actually be sort of, uh, I don't know, brave enough to just go and say, I will improvise and I'm sure that it will be nice for everybody. We'll see. But uh, I like yeah, the idea also transcriptions, that, that will be inter very interesting. I think I, I would love to do arrangements also myself. In some of your early concerto uh, experiences were with your father on the podium, which presumably was a kind of luxury because, you know, you could ask him afterwards, you know, questions or, you know, can we do this? But I mean, as part of your career now, you know, you fly into a city, you know, you might have two, three hour rehearsals if you're lucky, um, <laughs> then you do the concerto. Um, I mean, presumably there's a sort of element of compromise, you know, you go with your view of the, of the concerto, yeah. the, the conductor has his or her idea of the concerto, and it's a question of sort of meeting halfway. And there must also be a different experience where the conductor is very solicitous and says, you know, I will follow you. Yeah. Or the conductor who basically says, you know, this is the way we'll do it. So, you know, you follow me. Yeah. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the, the whole experience? Oh, the, the, I mean, of, 
of course, in on the moment of the concerts, it's not the orchestra following you. It's uh, uh, there are there are so many. There's an inertia that's uh, that comes with them. So it's no use trying to fight and still keep. I don't know. No, that's my tempo. My tempo. The, on the moment of the concert, uh, often. Yeah, if an orchestra suddenly takes time there, you just have to take time with them. Even if in the rehearsals, the conductor and the orchestra are very careful to follow you, on the moment of the concert, things happen, and it's part of the excitement. What is interesting is true that often we don't have a lot of rehearsals, we don't have a lot of time to get to know an orchestra, so it's a very nice feeling when you have a continuing like partnership with a conductor and you with an orchestra, because then you get some foundation that are still there the next time you see them and uh, you, you, you build from that. And especially now where young people that play in, with the orchestras, we need to find also young conductors that we will grow all together with. I think that's one of the most interesting things and uh, I think we, we all have ideas of partnerships in, in famous uh, conductors and, and soloists. and. I don't think it happens when just you play with a, a big name that's already established. I think it will, it happens, this partnership, really mostly when you find two people that are the same point of life together and that will probably find connections and grow older together. And that, that's, that's really something I, I, I look to. And yeah, in general, this concerto life can be sometimes, of course, a bit strenuous on the, on, on the no rehearsal time, kind of, because... Uh, you, you spend months practicing probably at work and uh, you arrive and everybody is just trying to do it in two hours and that's it. And there's some frustration that can come from that at the beginning where you, you have so much ideas and you have so much uh, that you want to like really take time to do like, okay, this instrument, I had this great idea and you can't because uh, there's a constraint of time. And and that's also when you, when you find also some conductors that's... Uh, are willing to to spend also their energy and time after the rehearsals with you or some musicians that will spend time after the rehearsals and uh, to really try to to, to actually uh, uh, make music and not be just in the job moment and the job is done and that's it so yeah you have amazing surprises and you have some deceptions and that's that's the life yeah. i mean one of the results of, of winning the tchaikovsky competition is that i assume that your concert life in russia sort of grew quite a quite a lot. I mean, you must have worked with a lots of different conductors and different orchestras there. I mean, did you did you learn stuff for, that the, the the sort of the Russian orchestral tradition <laughs> brought to you know war horses that actually you thought well, actually no if, if that's the way that's an interesting way of approaching it which in the West we'd never even considered. Oh, of course. I mean, uh, I would say this is a weird paradox in Russia where at the same time the the orchestras are don't have syndicates like we we have in the West. So sometimes like this, we don't care about the hours. There's a lot more disorganization in a way where you everybody's turning late, but it's fine and uh, it starts, but it it will last longer. Uh, at the same time, there's often a lot of concerts that happen with the least amount of rehearsals possible, where and you would suddenly arrive and you would on the day of the concerts and uh, you would have to just play 10 minutes with them and not even have the whole time of the concerto just do bits and pieces and suddenly go and, and play it's 
it's sometimes a bit weird, but it's it teaches enormous amounts of uh, actually how you 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 can all if you're stuck to to your seat and you all like are really sort of scared of not having practiced enough. Sometimes you have amazing moments because everybody's on their edge, on tensed and ready to really listen because they don't even know exactly 100% your parts and what you're going to do. So yeah, a lot of scary moments, but also a lot of great moments. And sometimes when you get, you get comfortable, you have this feeling of just, it's nearly improvisation, and, and that's also unique. It is interesting the way that, that art, as you were saying, is, is the tool for reconciliation so many times. I mean, there was that you know, extraordinary thing after the Second World War where, where Yehudi Menuhin, a Jewish musician, performed with Furtwängler, and it was, it was controversial at the time, yeah. but actually the statement it made was absolutely enormous. It was incredible, and uh, after all this time, even when Furtwängler was uh, having a huge backlash, Menwin always stood uh, for him. There's so this great example of von Kleibon winning the first Tchaikovsky competition during the Cold War, which uh, could never been thought of at the time, and uh, which was a huge statement. And thanks to that, we have some amazing moments captured. And uh, von Kleibon is still today, I think, the most one of the most important figures in Moscow. Uh, maybe Glenn Gould II after that. And uh, yeah, th these are these special moments, I think, where even if at the time it's hard and at the time it's controversial and it's, uh, we, nobody really gets a good idea, I think they stay in the end. These moments of friendship and these moments of music will stay always. In the it also actually takes us back to what we, very early in our conversation, that you know, the, the sort of the power and the, the kind of innate musicality of the Moscow audience, because it was almost the Moscow audience that propelled Kleiben to his win because they just took him under their, you know, they took him to their hearts Absolutely. in a way that only the Russians can. Absolutely, because I think I, I speak from most musicians when we, we never care about in which country and which nationality somebody is from and uh, what that means. We've, I think, always took the idea that we would be yeah, maybe it's exaggerated to say that, but citizens of the world, you know, this is a world of music and it's a world where actually, yeah, two people that are enemies can sit next to each other without problems because they are focused on listening to the same thing and that's music. And yeah, we are lucky to have that and we should really cherish it. Mm. So what does the sort of short-term future hold for you? Are there things, you know, you want to sort of tick off your list of things you'd like to do? I mean, in terms of, for example, like recordings, I know that I want to finish like the Brahms uh, recordings that I've made with the sonatas because this is uh, Brahms' very uh, early age and is at his most, I would say, dramatic, ambitious and uh, the, the most, I would say, whisk crazy taking uh, that he has only when he's really uh, in his young age. If you analyze the sonatas, it looks like mostly Liszt music uh, in some ways, or Schumann, the way he would actually dare to destroy form, be in this movement of going further and taking big structures further in time. So yeah, that would be definitely one, one thing I want to finish. I'm thinking also of, uh, of maybe doing Tchaikovsky, of course, second concerto in, in recording. I think it would be... Well, it's kind of, it's, it's a work you, you're now very closely associated with. Yeah, it's true. And uh, I, I, I still don't know exactly which orchestra with who I will, I will do it, but I, I really want to do it. I, I'm actually uh, also thinking maybe to put it in association with Masny, 
concerto because the two works they are both kind of ballet operatic works they I like the fact also Masne uh, affiliates his uh, his music to Russia also because in the last movement it's it's literally called Russian aria and it's based on Russian music and they, they have these uh, moments of solo chamber music they have the these sort of personal lavishes of uh, of just quite tender moments and they, they, they are not afraid of being emotional, I would say. Now, uh, the, the last question, which is something I'm going to put to everybody in this, in this series of uh, interviews, is if you weren't a musician, you know, what, what do you think your, your other profession might have been or your alternative profession might have been? Well, it would definitely be something to do with science, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I, for a long time, and still do read a lot about astrophysics. It's something that always fascinates uh, I, I don't have sort of the, the courage of the sense of sacrifice enough to, to be actually an astronaut and go out there in space. But I would probably try to have done studies in physics and maybe help to like understand a bit more about the universe and try to help people like sending off ships or being with the teams that will try to think what's, what's now the future, can we actually try to, can our technological advancements will allow us maybe to one day go to Mars, even if it's like small steps or what's our understanding about actual space-time and the, the fact of reuniting the theories of, uh, of, of gravity and the theories of quantums that are the, the, like the, the goal of maybe every, every scientist in the world. So uh, yeah, some, something like that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I would have been really this good at it because I was I think good at, uh, in, I was good in logic and applying formulas, but in the, the creative sense of, of uh, thinking sideways and thinking off, off the ground, this is hard and this is what's needed, I think. So, yeah, it would have been a surprise probably. Well, Alexander, oh. thank you so much for giving us your time and your wisdom and your thoughts and um, best of luck with Well, the... yeah, thank you for, for coordinating everything and, yeah, really appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed getting to know Alexandra Kantarov. Before we leave you, let's play it by ear for a moment. We've prepared a survey on sounds and noises for all our artists to answer off the cuff. Here are Alexandra's responses. Are you more comfortable surrounded by noise or silence? Probably silence, yeah. If you could choose the sound of your doorbell, what would it be? I mean, <laughs> what, or what is your ringtone? Oh, ringtone. Um, ringtone on, oh, on my cell phone, every call is scary, so maybe the music of Psycho in Hitchcock. What's the sound you wake up to? Mm, oh, sounds of nature would be the, the best feeling of, yeah, being high in the mountains. If your life was a movie, what would your theme song be? Either, either Evangelist uh, in, in Blade Runner. Um, what do you use the most relaxing sound? Uh, something cooking, like, uh, like a chicken being cooked or something. And what's the most irritating? Uh, irritating... Uh, drop of water falling in the sink. Uh, <laughs> what sound reminds you most of home? I would say a mixture of, yeah, uh, it's, it's, I don't have a sound, it's more like the, the, the smell of something baking and uh, conversations of laughter and just before you open the door. Yeah. What's the first sound you remember hearing? I think the first uh, sound I remember, I think it's the ducks on the, in the pond where, where we would used to uh, 
go with uh, my my granddad. Like he would feed the ducks, and uh, I think it's yeah, the first thing I remember. What sound makes you think immediately of a, a sort of happy memory or a happy place? Maybe maybe tuning. I don't know uh, the, the tuning of instruments. Uh, I don't know if it's a happy place, but it's uh, certainly a place where I would I would want to be at the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Music Makers, produced by Medici TV, with the generous support of Madame Aline Foriel d'Estuzet. Log on to Medici TV for exclusive video versions of the podcast, early access to new episodes and on-demand videos of all our special guests. (laughs) 